Part three, inputs and outputs. This is the course distributed parameter systems. A system has inputs and outputs. At the moment we have treated equations without inputs and outputs. So now in this part we will see how you can model a system with PDEs. In previous part we have seen what is the solution of z dot equals az, this abstract differential equation. Now we add inputs to it. We add a u term. So we add a bu. And we add an output equation. So y is c of z of t plus d of u of t. We start with the input equation. Inputs. So now we look at the first equation. z dot equals az plus bu. And we would like to have solutions of that. First, some assumptions on A and B. A, just our generator of a Z0 semigroup. B, a bounded operator from a Hilbert space U into our state space, the Hilbert space set. Here we have the equation again. Z dot equals AZ plus BU. We would like to find a solution of this, at least to find the form of this solution. What will we do? We multiply, so we assume for one moment that we have a classical solution, so we are allowed to differentiate z lies in the domain of A, etc. Yeah? We are just playing to find a form of the solution. What do we do? We multiply this whole equation with the semigroup evaluated at t1 minus t. t is our running variable, t1, I fix. What do we find? Hey, multiplied the whole equation, what have we found? Semigroup times z, of, z dot of t minus semigroup a of z is semigroup times b. Yeah, move the a term to the other side. Hey, this left hand side is really the derivative. It's the derivative of the semigroup t evaluated at t1 minus t times z. But wait one moment, at the left hand side we have a derivative of a function, at the right hand side nothing has changed. How can we remove this derivative? By integrating. But we have to, of course to integrate both sides. Here we have it. So the integral, now I started with the left hand side, so the integral over the semigroup t1 minus t b t integrated from 0 to t1 is now precisely the integral over the derivative. So that's just very easy to evaluate. That is z of t minus 1 minus t at t1 z0. Hence we have seen somehow this theorem. This theorem tells us, so it, we have not really proved this theorem, but we made it very acceptable. If we look at the equation z dot equals az plus bu, then we find that we have this form of the equation, namely the state evaluated at time t is equal of the semigroup evaluated in t times z0 plus this integral term. The integral over the semigroup t minus tau b tau d tau. Now you can prove, as I did, with a homogeneous equation, so hence if u equals to zero, you find 
that this is the weak solution, but if u is very smooth, so c1, and z0 lies in the domain of a, then we have the classical solution. One thing I want to point out, if you take u to be zero, what happens? This whole integral term becomes zero. And what do we find? z of t, 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 z of zero. Again, what we know, yeah? If there were no input, no u, then we had the differential equation z dot equals az. And the solution of it was the semigroup times the initial condition. Let's do a simple example. So as my example, I take this transport equation, but now with a u term. So partial derivative with respect to time equal to partial derivative with respect to space plus u of t yeah? over the interval 0, 1. Yeah? We can write it precisely in our abstract form. z dot equals az plus bu. Forget for one moment the u term. You see, hey, wait, we know already what the a was. That was given to us in part 2. So what did we find? a was the derivative with respect to the spatial variable with this domain. And b of u, so what is now I've written down? 1 times u. How should you see it? The input are just scalar inputs. It was just written u of t. So at a fixed time instant, u of t is just a scalar value. Say a complex number or real number, if you prefer real over complex. So you have just at a fixed time, u is a number. But it should be, should map from my input space into my state space. My state space are L2 functions. How does b do it? It basically takes a scalar number and multiplies it with the function 1. So that's how you have to read this 1 times u. 1 is really the constant function 1. It's not just the number 1, but it's the constant function 1. So now you see if I write b of u in this way, b is now a mapping that maps to every real number or complex number, it maps a function in L2 namely the function 1 times u. If you, and this is precisely the partial differential equation. We can also find the solution now. We have this, this formula. Yeah, we know that z of t, the solution to the inhomogeneous differential equation, z dot equals az plus bu, we know what solution that is. The semigroup times the initial condition, which was the homogeneous part, plus this integral. What have I done? There is the semigroup, is the initial condition, it's the part given by the initial condition. The integral part is precisely the semigroup working on the function 1. The b was 1 was the function identically 1. What was the semigroup doing? It was shifting it. And by using this indicator function, as given here, I can just write down this shift. So here you have the solution. 
Second example. As you see already, we take these two examples of part two, we take them also in this, in this part of the course. Yeah? So we, I have given the transport equation, now I will do the diffusive equation. And you have to think of this, this as being a model of, say, this bar heated at one half of the bar. And I'm assuming that it's uniformly heated. So that's this U part, yeah? So U is again a scalar input. Yeah? Need not to be, but at this, this model I'm taking a, a scalar input. So it's uniformly heated in this half of the bar. What are given these boundary conditions? They are given in that there is no heat change at this boundary. There is no heat flux at this boundary. So that means that they are insulated. Now if you think about it, it's very easy what, how to find A and B. A we know, will be given, but let's concentrate on B, on the new part. You see already in the equation, you see there is a function times U. So I can see this part as being an operator which maps U into the function space. Namely, what does it? It takes a value U and it multiplies it with the indicator function of the second half interval, yeah? the interval from a half to one. And it's just B, and it's clear that that is a bounded operator. Now, here is A, but A is precisely as we found. Yeah? That's precisely the part you get when U equals to zero. And we have solved that in part two. So we have now, for these two examples, we have seen what is the how I can write it as z dot equals a z plus b u. You see that I needed much less time to explain this than to explain how you could write a PDE, a homogeneous PDE, into the format z dot equals a z. It's much easier. It's somehow already transparently written there in the form of it. So that was the input part. Now we come to the output. This section is called inputs and outputs. So the output equation is y equals c of z plus du. There is no differential equation there. It's just an equation relating the input in the state, so the input u with the state z, with the output y. Now I know what the solution is of z. I know that is the so, if C and D are bounded operators, then it means that it can work on every element. See what I've done here. I had C of Z of T, I just replaced by Z of T, what, what is Z of T? Z of T is just the semigroup times the initial condition plus this integral. Now the nice thing is that since I have bounded, this c can be put into the integral. So I can just write down this variation of constant formula in this expression. If you have had a course in finite dimensional theory, which I am assuming for this course, then you will recognize this formula. Just replace every semigroup, every tt, by a to the power t, and there you have this well-known formula for the solution of a state space equation. So, 
Let's see what is an example of an ABC term. I again take my heated bar. I heat it in this thing, and what do I observe? I observe the average temperature here. The, the, the temperature in this area, but not at every point. I take the, I take the integral over it. Now you see the A and B, so the input part was already clear, and how to write this output part. I have to write it as an operator, C, working on my state, working on Z, and giving values at my output space. What is my output space? I'm, I'm taking an average temperature in the second part, so my output is just a scalar. So again, the Y space, the output space, is again, say, complex numbers. So there we have it. What is C doing with Z? It takes the integral from 0 to a half of Z of X. So you again see here, time is frozen to find this C. We have now a system, input U, output Y. But what is the, the, the essence of control? is to close the system, to make an input. So to, to define the input on basis of the outputs. So you would, we have know now what we mean by a solution of this system, but what happens if we close the loop? And here I have to close the loop, but what is now happening to my differential equation? I have z dot equals az plus bu, y is z of z, and this feedback is just given a constant k, or a constant operator k. So u at this side is k times y. So we have closed the loop, then I suddenly get a new abstract differential equation, namely z dot equals a plus b k c times z. And I'm wondering if that thing has a solution, which is a new differential equation. So am I allowed to close the loop? Now, before I go to the next slide, you would be very surprised if the answer would be no, because that would mean that for this distributed parameter systems, feedback would not be allowed. And in this theorem you see the answer is yes. Yeah? I've somehow summarized this term, this KC, as being an F, and F, if K and C are bounded operators, F is also a bounded operator. So what do you find? If I close the loop, then I have, again, a new semigroup. So the abstract equation Z dot equals A plus BF Z has a solution, meaning that, it, that A plus BF generates a Z0 semigroup. And even more, if you look at this, this semigroup, it satisfies precisely what we had. If you think of this ST of Z0 as just as ZT, you see ZT is my semigroup evaluated, the original semigroup evaluated at Z0, plus the integral from 0 to T, semigroup T minus tau, B, F, Z of T. Precisely what you would expect if you would have broken 
this closed loop. So if you have broken it in two parts, if you would seen it. So it precisely makes sense. This was all very positive and very easy. But let's see to this equation. Now I have, so look at this bar. I have now this transport differential equation, but now I don't have the u in the first line, but I have u at the boundary condition. The value at 1 is now u, and u I want to change. Not so surprising, yeah, you could think of here no, that you have a kind of boundary control. I will come later and we will find some examples. But we cannot write it in this classic format. We cannot write it with as AZ plus BU with B a bounded operator. So we have to do something else. Here I have my differential equation again, I just copied it. And now I perform a trick. Instead of z, I use another variable. I write v of x and t as being z, x of t, minus u of t. And now I just differentiate it. If I differentiate v with respect to time, I have to differentiate z with respect to time and u with respect to time. u with respect to time is u, just u dot. But the derivative of z with respect to time is equal to the derivative of z with respect to the spatial variable, with respect to x. That's written here. But now let's see, what is the boundary condition? z at 1 is equal to u. But v at 1 is equal to z at 1 minus u. Hey. That is zero. So, I have for v, I have a partial differential equation with u dot, yeah, the derivative of u, but with a homogeneous boundary condition. In the previous part, we just had that I know how to write this as a v plus b u dot. And then u dot you can call your new input u tilde. What we have seen in this example, I can do more abstractly. And what do I do? I write down an diff abstract differential equation with this, with this strange a, this curly a, but it's still, and the first line is just my differential equation, and at the second hand it says u is z evaluated somewhere. Yeah, b of z evaluated at t is u of t. Now I have three assumptions, namely, this A must be a linear operator, B must be a linear operator, and the domain of A must be smaller than the domain of B. So B needs not to be defined everywhere, but it has to be defined at more functions, at more elements of Z than this curly A. Second one is, if I make this operator a smaller, I, I make its domain smaller. So instead of going to the domain of this curly a, I intersect the domain of its original operator with the kernel of this curly b. I get a smaller set, and that one should generate a z0 semigroup. Why is that logical? 
Now, think of it, u is the input, u is free. So what could I do? I could take u to be zero. But wait one moment, if I have u being zero, then I have a homogeneous differential equation, an abstract homogeneous differential equation. By a solution I will always mean that it generates a z0 semigroup. What is precisely saying u is, what is the condition on z if u is zero, then z lies in the kernel of this curly b. And then there is a last condition, which looks a little bit simple, but it, for more complicated PDEs it is a quite hard condition. And it's sometimes very hard to check it. The range of b should be the whole of u. Since this curly b is surjective, I can find an inverse, not a real inverse, but at least an inverse at one side. So that I mean there is a normal b, which I, an operator which I denote by a normal b, such that curly b, normal b, u, is equal to u. And even more, and this, this normal b maps into the domain of the curly b, otherwise this, this condition would not make sense. Now I define, I do something similar as I did in this transport equation. I define a new function, v. And v I define as z of t minus the b, normal b, u of t. What do I know? This normal b lies in the domain of this curly b. Curly b, the domain of curly b, was a subset of the domain of curly a. So if z lies in the domain of curly a, this z minus b u t also lies in the domain of curly a. But I know a little bit more. If I let curly b work on my v, what do I get? I get curly b working on z, and I get curly b working on b u. But with the u it becomes the identity, so that last term just becomes u, and by definition curly b working on z is u. So what do I find? Curly b v is zero. Hence, I know it lies in the, so v lies in the domain of curly a, but also it lies in the kernel of this curly b. Hence it lies in the domain of a, by definition. Now I evaluate the derivative of v. v dot equals z dot minus b u dot. z dot is the curly a z plus b u dot. But what do I know? I know that I can write z as being, look here, z I can write as v plus b u. If I plug that in, then I find this abstract differential equation for v. There is another thing, since v lies in the domain of the normal a, I can replace this curly a by the normal a. And what have I found? I have found that I have the normal differential equation in back. So, the differential equation with this boundary control, by this trick, performing this trick, I made into a normal differential equation. Made this into a differential equation of v. So v is still related to z, and if I want to find z I have to calculate back, but that is easy. 
So, but V satisfies a, an inhomogeneous differential equation which I have treated before. But now I have, have to pay a price. I have this curly A working on B and I have U dot. So I have, it's not really U, but it's close. What have I shown you? I've shown you that if Z is a classical solution of this Z dot curly A Z curly B Z is U, then this V defined by Z minus B U is a classical solution of this V dot equals the normal A, etc., etc. You can converse this argument, do it the other, just start with V being a solution of this normal, eh, of this normal inhomogeneous equation, I just call it normal, with the normal A, with normal B, you go back and you find in that Z satisfies in that boundary relation. So, what have we found? We found now a solution for V. V is semi-group times the initial condition plus the integral from 0 to T semi-group T minus tau and then this input term. It's a little bit more complicated but it's the same idea. Yeah? This whole input term, this whole hom inhomogeneous term is written there. Let's do it for our example. I have again this transport equation and I'm controlling it at this end. What's the curly A? The curly A is just this derivative with respect to space. And of course I, it has to have a domain such that I can evaluate it. Yeah? So I need, uh, say, absolutely continuous, etc. I've written it shorter. I just said it are all functions in L2 for which the derivative is also in L2. In B, you see it, eh? B of Z must be equal to Z at the point 1. So that's precisely how I define it. And what do I take as domain? I could have taken as the domain of this curly B to be all continuous functions, because I can evaluate a continuous function at 1. But I, since it doesn't matter as long as the domain is not smaller than the domain of A, I can, so at, I've chosen to have it the same domain as the curly A. But of course, there is a little bit of freedom. Now, let's check the conditions. I've written down what A is, I've written down what this curly B is, and let's check the conditions. First one, both operators are linear. Simple. Yeah? The one is differentiation, the other one is evaluating at a point. Sum of functions is the sum, the derivative of the sum of functions is the sum of the derivative. The second one, if I look at my operator curly A, at this domain, but I make this domain smaller by looking at the kernel of B. What is B doing? It's evaluating at 1. So what is the kernel of, of B? There are all functions in this domain of curly A, so all absolutely continuous functions, where are evaluated at 1, they are 0. This is precisely the domain of this generator which we found in part 2. There we have proved that it generates a Z0 semi-group. It even generated a contraction semi-group. Third one, the range of B is C. Very simple. If I just have 
continuous or absolutely continuous function, I can give it any value at 1. So you give me a number it has to have, and I can find a function such that that function evaluated at 1 has precisely that value. Now is the question, what can I find, what can I take as my b? Yeah? Not the curly b, but the b, such that it has to satisfy curly b, b is the identity. I can take the function 1. I can take other functions as well, because curly b only evaluates b at the point 1. But the simplest one is to take this b to be the function identically 1. Let's see. We had this whole equation, we had this whole equation with the curly a working on a and then uh, curly a working on b. But this term is zero. What is curly a? Curly a was differentiation. What have I chosen for b? b I have chosen it to be the function identically 1. So if I differentiate it, it's zero. So this term disappears in this this integral term. So I still have that my v of t, on the one hand side it's equal to z of t minus b u of t, so b is 1, so it's equal to z of t minus 1 u of t, is v of t, but v of t I have the solution, that's the semi-group working on the initial condition, plus the integral of semi-group working on the inhomogeneous part. In the inhomogeneous part there has a minus sign. I put already, I took the liberty to putting that minus sign in front of the integral. And now I can try to, I can plug in what I know. I know my semi-group is this shift semi-group. So I just write it down. And here it is. But it looks a little bit disappointing, eh? Till some. It's the solution. But is it not, can it not be given in a much simpler format? The simpler format I do here. Now for t greater than 1. So I have of course to do it for all t, but I start with t greater than 1. So the first lines are just the semi-group working on the initial condition in the integral term. So just this uh, term we had on the last slide. Now, but think. There is there an indicator function of x plus t. But the indicator function is only one within the interval 0, 1. If t is already larger than 1, x is between 1 and 0, 1 and 0. So this term, x plus t is larger than 1. So this term coming from the homogeneous part, eh, coming from the initial condition, is 0. Then you have to look at this integral. In this integral, there is also a, a step function. Now, this integral runs from 0 to t. So if you look at it, then t, then you are within the interval, but you stop. So you get precisely the lower bound x plus t minus 1. And now it becomes very simple. You just have to evaluate it, and there it is. So we have done t larger than 1. So we have now to do t still between 0 and 1. So I now take t less than 1, yeah, still positive but less than 1, and I take x, 
So I have now to split my interval and I take x close to 1. It's very similar. You just have to look at it, but the homogeneous part now plays a role. x plus t, which is the argument there, but think one moment, x is between 0 and 1 minus t. So x plus t is less than 1. So it is in the interval 0, 1. So the homogeneous part plays a role. Cannot put it to 0. Also the interval, the integral from 0 to t, is now so small that I can evaluate it. This indicator function is 1 over this whole interval. And I get that this term, the initial condition, evaluated in x plus t minus u of t. So I still have to do 1. This is what I have to do. I still have to do x between 1 minus t and 1. You look at it, then x plus t is larger than 1. So the initial condition disappears again. And for the integral, it's the same story as t larger than 1. So it's very simple. So I get this. I can imagine that you are now very puzzled. We have t larger than 1, t smaller than 1, and then we had to split x into, into different parts again. Yeah, the interval x we had to split. So I summarize it. And that's the summary. Very simple. z evaluated in x, t is the initial condition x plus t if x plus t is less than 1, and it's the input shifted for x plus t larger than 1. And this is the picture. Now look at it. See, in the beginning, in part 2, there was no input. What was happening, here I had 1, it was 0 there, and the solution was shifting that way. Did you also see, that is what I called z0 part, the initial condition part. Yeah, it was just shifting that way. But now I say, my, my controlled part was saying, at this end, I have u of t. And what is basically happening, this u is just shifting in. Yeah, it's just shifting in. So what you see there in the middle of the drawing, that is just u of zero. It shifted already to half the interval. Let's evaluate our solution at x is 1. If we do that, then we have u x plus t minus 1. If I plug in x is 1, what do I find? u of t, which is precisely by giving there z 1 comma t. So the nice thing of being this rewriting, we had only a solution if u dot was absolutely continuous, but now we have even for u being absolutely continuous. I have not drawn it, but u was a, is allowed to have jumps. Yeah, it just is shifting in. What is the story? It's just uh, at this point it's shifting in and slowly replacing in the initial condition. So we are now at the end of section 3 of part 3. And what have we learned? We have learned how to define inputs and outputs. So I've given here your PDE. Yeah, this, this diffusion equation, this heat equation, the metal bar, heated at one half, measured at the other half. And we know now how to write this in this abstract form. Z dot equals AZ plus BU. Y is C of Z 
plus d of u. In most examples, as the previous example, d is just zero. And we know also in what is the solution of it. We know eh, how to solve this equation. So we are basically ready for control. Another one what we learned and that these, these boundary control systems, which are not directly written in the format z dot equals a z plus b u, how we can write them. Yeah? So I've given here again this shift, eh? shift example where the input at 1 was given. Yeah? So the input and it was shifted in. So everything just shifted in. That was just a special example of this boundary control system, of this abstract form. We also know what is the solution of this boundary control equation. In our motivation part, part 1, I showed you um, problems I was involved in. And let's now see, they were also control problems, let's see how they fit in. What have we... Are they now looking a little bit familiar to us? We begin with the UV reactor. Remember, that was this pipe and where dirty water was coming in at this end. And there was, a, in the middle, there was a light tube with UV light and it was killing the bacteria. Now, the radius was indicated by R in this here it was indicated by x. That were our variables. And that the concentration at this side here was dirty water coming in. Let's now look at this model once more. So I've already written down the model for the concentration. What do you see? First one, how the concentration is changed in respect to time. You see, the first term there is something, a v, times the concentration in x. That's precisely that shift. That's basically saying, hey, this concentration is just coming in and shifts through. Second term, there we recognize our diffusion. So this con concentration is also mixing in other layers. Yeah, It's mixing. And what is then this term? This term is just the control term, k was really uh, had to do with the light intensity. But now we see already one difficulty. It's k times c. That is a nonlinear control term. What we have treated until now, it's only linear control theory. So if you want to apply linear control theory, you have to linearize it. But this k is really the light intensity. So it's a control term. But you could think, I take it to be a constant. And then you see, where there is another term coming in. It's here. At zero, there the concentration is coming in. And it's precisely at a boundary. Of course, it's the Z0 what comes in is not a control input, but it's a disturbance input. We, we know now that also and there was no distinction between what was you, a control input or a disturbance input. It was just something coming in into the system. Hence, we know now how to model it. And how this model can be written in an abstract form. We do the same thing, or try to do the same thing, with the storage of potatoes. 
yeah, we had this big bulk of potatoes and there was air going around. Yeah? I will show you the model again and we will look. Here we have the complete model. But at this moment it's very hard to distinguish inputs and outputs. Why? Because it's basically a model in closed loop. Temperature that comes out at the top is, is transformed and becomes going back. But we can recognize some parts in this model which has a clear input-output structure. Look for instance at the air temperature. Then you have to look at this equation and at the last one. First one is just in shift, so basically saying that the temperature at the bottom is shifted through this potato heap. But of course there is temperature exchange with the potatoes. But you see, again at this last equation, there is this boundary control. Basically this air temperature is controlled by the temperature in the shaft. So if you can control T0 by the cooling device and by the speed of air, yeah, this phi, then you have controlled this system. The output of this system you could think of the air temperature at the top. And then you, if you just look at the potato storage, so not at the shaft but at the bulk, then you see somehow the, clearly this input-output structure. And the input is a boundary input, the output is also a boundary output. Yeah, it's also working at the boundary. And this is the end of, of part 3.